me some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in town and branch microbiter. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, in my secret location down in Jupiter, Florida, live from Jupiter, Florida. And we have two great guests coming on tonight. Well, one, my co-host, Phil Grimaldi, and he's coming to you straight out of Brooklyn. I won't tell you where he is. We don't want anyone looking for him as he's his search for cannolis all over Brooklyn. Phil, how are you tonight? I'm doing pretty good from my secure location. <laughs> That's good, Phil. And uh, we also have a new uh, subscriber, fan, favorite, straight out of DA Bronx, Dub Bronx, professor and retired NYPD sergeant, Mike Geary. How are you doing tonight, Mike? Good, Billy. From my library. From your li Live from the library. He's safe in that library. It's a it's a bunker library. He's, he's, he's doing all right. So... So, guys, a lot of federal library makes sense. <laughs> guys, a lot of new um, new information came out today. Just real timely, timely information. And initially, we were talking about they found out that uh, Brian Koberger had uh, be, been DMing, and that's computer lingo. I know some of you guys my age and older, or maybe my age and younger, don't know what DM means. It's a direct message. There is right there direct evidence that he had some kind of contact with um, Kaylee Gonsalves and, and Madison Mogan, or he tried to contact them. But why would he try to contact them unless he had some real contact with them outside of cyber world, outside of the Internet? He must have ran into them real or imagined in his mind, either somewhere in, in Idaho maybe where they worked or saw them somewhere where he became potentially infatuated with them. But now here's this real, real connection, which everyone, of course, now is jumping to this could be the motive. Everyone needs to know the motive, even though we've told you a million times um, that motive is not necessary in proving this crime. But everyone, nonetheless, wants to know the motive. Mike, you want to uh, talk about that for a sec? Yeah, everybody wants to know why. I mean, even I want to know why. But, you know, as an attorney, you know, it's not necessary to prove motive. All you have to prove is that the person had the requisite mental state, what we call the mens rea, and they performed the actus reus, the criminal act. You know, you want to know how, when, who did it, you know, how do they do it, that sort of thing. But it is important for the jury, perhaps, for them to understand the context in which this terrible crime took place, because without them knowing it, the, the uh, motive, it might seem so senseless that they may have a, have difficulty trying to figure out why, you know, how could this happen? And so it, it is a question that we'd all like to answer, but it is absolutely not necessary for a criminal conviction. Absolutely. Phil, you want to weigh in on that? Sure. Um, I think it's clear that there was some type of interaction somewhere along the line between Brian and 
whoever it was, he was di- uh, uh, direct messaging. Uh, perhaps it could have been a very, very uh, mild interaction. Let's say he went into the location where they worked and he became infatuated. Somehow or another, he learned the name, found them on uh, the social media site. I believe it was Instagram and looked them up and sent a, a direct message. There could be further contact that we don't know about. We know we're getting little dribs and drabs of information from the investigation. Uh, we heard that earlier today, the uh, information about the direct message. Then later on, we know that the uh, the warrant for the uh, office and the location in Washington where he, li- uh, where he lived, the off-campus apartment, uh, that warrant was released. That search warrant was released. We're going to be talking about that. So again, we're getting these little bits of information. Perhaps there is some type of a motive uh, within this information. And again, uh, I know that everybody wants the motive. We know it's not required to get a conviction. But when you think about it from the standpoint of a juror sitting on a jury, uh, they want to know what was it that propelled this individual to, uh, you know, focus on and target uh, these victims. So, again, it's not necessary. However, I think if you do get the motive, you can come up with some type of, uh, uh, you know, a prerequisite, so to speak, for him targeting them. Then I think it puts it all together. And I think that the jury will understand it a lot better. You know, Mike, we spoke off the air about um, building a case one brick at a time, like building a house one brick at a time. And of course, everyone with this case has been so, um, no one has any patience. Everyone wants to know everything yesterday. And as things start coming in slowly, as I said, let's build this case one brick at a time, like we build a house one brick at a time. And it's starting to come together and slowly. However, you know, it's being argued uh, in the media, it's being argued on television, and it's being tried already before the case is six to nine months away, probably more like nine months away from even going to trial. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I think one of the uh, I like to piggyback on what Phil said and answer your question um, with the uh, you know instant messaging, uh, direct messaging. I'm sorry, on Instagram. I think it's really important, and it's one little piece, uh, one little brick in the wall to build the case against Brian Koberg is because it appears that the um, that the messaging, the direct messaging, began around the end of October. And so say it, that's say October, we'll just take roughly October 24th, something like that, around that day. I'm not sure the exact date. And then the, the homicide, the quadruple homicide, took place November 13th. Um, and during that, that little three-week window, um, that began uh, the reconnaissance that we've talked about numerous times, driving past the location on a dozen times. So it appears that the reconnaissance didn't begin, uh, as from what we know right now, it appears that the reconnaissance and aiming for the, this apartment and the infatuation and driving around did not begin until after the direct messaging, which to me proves that this wasn't some sort of random thing that he did, that um, in the beginning of the semester, he didn't know them. And then he comes to know them in his mind somewhere in late October. And then within three weeks, he's dri- driven past the uh, home about a dozen times. And then he he executes them. So I think that's a tremendously Mike, Mike, important. I think, I, yeah. Mike, I don't mean to interrupt, but I think that he was 
spot, uh, spotted with the, I'm sorry, his cell phone was pinging in the area of the house all the way back to August. So perhaps he oh, did have some type of, uh, he did have some type of uh, a connection with them, although at least to the location, connection to the location based on his cell phone patterns going back to August. There were 12 oh, different okay. times when the phone pinged in and around the area of the home. So there was uh, some type of surveillance or he was in the location with thinking it's surveillance that he was, he was doing the recon early on. Perhaps when he first got to the location, to the area, to Washington for the semester, he may have had an interaction or perhaps there was a party at the location and he knew about it. A lot of times these kids will have a party and they'll post it either on social media or, they do. you know, they'll put yeah. it at uh, one of the uh, fraternities. So again, that, that, that may be how he came upon them. And then the direct messaging happened, obviously later on, like you said, they, they, uh, today's news, report said it was two weeks before the murders took place right. approximately so you're right really let me get this report from law and crime yeah. on here police seized Brian Hoberger's apartment the day that he was arrested for the murders of four University of Idaho students I'm Anjanette Levy and thanks for joining us here on law and crime the search warrant for Brian Koberger's apartment in Pullman Washington was unsealed just a short time ago this came as a little bit of a surprise because this document was supposed to remain sealed until March 1st of this year. When sealing the document, the judge said he believed it could endanger the investigation or possibly the victims in this case or possibly end the investigation early if the documents were made public, possibly tipping off the suspect. And Koberger, of course, was arrested in Pennsylvania at his parents' home on December 30th for the murders of Maddie Mogan, Kaylee Gonsalves, Zana Carnodal, and Ethan Chapin at their home on King Road in Moscow, Idaho, back on November 13th. For weeks, uh, the community was terrified. They were frightened because it appeared a killer was on the loose and it looked like there weren't any suspects. But we later learned that police kind of had eyes on Brian Koberger at the beginning of or the middle of December. So let's take a look at what investigators acted from Brian Koberger's apartment when they executed that search warrant back on December 30th. The return for the search warrant says one gloves along with a Walmart receipt with one Dickies tag two Marshall's receipts, a dust container from a Bissell Power Force vacuum, eight possible hair strands, one fire TV stick with cord and plug, one possible animal hair strand, and other possible hairs and a possible hair strand. One computer tower, one collection of a dark spot was taken that was collected without testing, we believe, for presumptive blood. Two cuttings from uncased pillows of reddish or brown stains. It says the larger stain was tested. And finally, two top and bottom of mattress covered package separately, both labeled C, and that there were multiple stains and one of them was tested. So we believe it's possible that some of these reddish brown stains, or at least one of them, could have contained blood. It doesn't explicitly state that. When applying for this search warrant, police are interested in anything in that apartment, including a knife or a sheath. We know from this that a knife was not located, and the sheath was actually found under the body of Maddie Mogan, according to other documents that have been filed in this case. Now, they've also said they were looking for any electronic evidence connecting Brian Koberger to the case, including the two surviving roommates. We don't know what Brian Koberger's possible connection could be to any of these victims. The attorney for 
opportunity had told me that really for the other victims in this case. I did get some screen grabs of an Instagram post, uh, an Instagram account rather, that appeared to be linked to Brian Koberger on the day of his arrest. And that account was followed. Look at that right there. Now there's, there's some real evidence of this. Um, one of the things that I just want to uh, say that early on in the investigation, you know, rumors kept coming out, and the specific rumor that kept coming out was, were these were these kids targeted? Was the house targeted? Uh, Kaylee Gonzalez, why did she have more severe wounds than the others? And the thought was, maybe she was targeted. And then we had talking heads from the FBI from behavioral analysis that said that doesn't necessarily mean that she was targeted, but a great deal of them did say they thought that that meant that she was targeted. However, uh, some of the leaks, believe it or not, came from Steve Gonsalves, the father of Kaylee. He had indicated that he thought she may have had a stalker, that she, she may have been the targeted person. So a lot of the things that we're finding out now and we're at the rumor phase actually now are coming out to be true. And I find that a little peculiar, but well, it's not really peculiar. There's leaks in everything, but the leaks are turning out to be true, not false, uh, not false leaks. Following both Kaylee Gonsalves and Maddie Mogan, it was later deleted. We will continue to follow this story and bring you any new information for law. So pretty, pretty powerful, Philly. right? If you think back to when we first, the first show that we did on this case, you and I both said that we believed there was going to be some type of a disrespect to the perpetrator some way, somehow. I almost could feel that this is coming through what we said, that he may have had some type of interaction, perhaps trying to follow them on social media and they rejected him. There may have been an advance or you know, trying to get a phone number, something like that. And I think that that's sort of coming together at this point. I think we were right on the right track. Our, our feeling was, uh, was that there was some type of a, maybe a, a boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, or someone that tried to get close to one of these victims. And we felt that that was going to be the perpetrator in this case. And he, he, he had this building, uh, uh, you know, he was focused on them. It was building, it was manifesting inside of him. Way back to August, we know the phone was pinging that area. And then on November 13th, uh, he struck out. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, I had to, look, so many people have made predictions on this. I was trying to make what I considered to be a hypothesis, which is an educated guess based on our experience. And I had sort of predicted, too, that it was, I had said it was a townie, someone from the town. That didn't turn out to be true. It turned out to be, well, a... PhD student that was in the the age group and and the uh, geographical profile that we we had uh, mentioned. However, I feel also like you just said, Phil, that something got this guy enraged, that he was blown off by one or two of these girls, and in his mind, he just something just snapped. Mike, yeah, he doesn't take rejection well at all under any circumstances um the when he uh there was a particular bar he'd frequent uh, i think it was in pennsylvania where he he actually was told that he wasn't welcome 
because he was trying to talk up the uh, waitresses, but he was getting very personal. And then when he was rebuffed, he called uh, at least one of them a bitch. And he was told basically, you know, we'd rather you not frequent this place anymore. Um, and, you know, that's part of it. He's been uh, rejected by a lot of people over the course of the last 10, 15 years of his life. And uh, it finally, as Phil said, it built up to a point where um, it boiled over. He gets to maybe Washington, you know, and maybe he's figuring, okay, I can start all over again here. And he get he strikes out. And I think Phil's on the right. Phil and you are both on the right track. It just, but you know, Mike, people are rejected all the time, every single day of the week, and they don't kill for no, people. absolutely you not. Know? Right. So there was something loose in his brain. Oh, absolutely. And you know, some people have mentioned in the chat and um, the whole incel argument. Uh, and I, I look, I did 27 years in the NYPD, 16 in the detective bureau, 10 in homicide. I never heard that term incel before, and it stands for it's involuntarily celibate. Right. Right. And there's these guys on the Internet that troll for girls and and uh, maybe they're ticking time bombs. Phil. Yeah, I uh, I believe that uh, term was never uttered in any of my presence, my time on the NYPD, 22 years. Um, you know, when we describe a sociopath, we talk about how uh, the behavior is extreme. Uh, the attitudes are manifesting and the behavior uh, lacks consciousness. I think Brian, from what we're getting of his profile, he fits all of those uh, all of those categories. And again, like you said, um, he was dished somewhere along the way. He was rejected. He didn't take the rejection well. And um, over time, he just built up this rage. It just manifested inside of him. It got worse and worse. And then once he started to study criminology and study serial killers, I think that's when he got on the path uh, of a homicidal maniac that he was going to do these things. And, um, he probably, um, was able to have some type of release when he committed the crimes. Uh, he became euphoric. And of course, the reason I say that is he asked in the survey that he did, uh, for other, uh, convicts or people that had committed crimes, what was your feeling before, during, and after you committed the crime? How did you feel? Uh, so again, he was trying to reach that euphoric uh, point. Maybe he wanted information on it. He did extensive research on serial killers and uh, all of the things related to uh, criminal justice and criminology. So again, um, he really put his head to this, I think way in the past that he was going to commit these crimes. And then over time when he uh, had this interaction that we believe may have taken place and was dissed, that's when he targeted these, uh, these young children. They really are children, just young kids. Folks, uh, someone in the chat said, well, what about all the things they removed from his apartment in the warrant? Well, obviously, those things have to be tested. There's hairs, there's fibers, there's potential blood evidence. The computer, the computer tower, that has to be forensically gone over. That, again, could be a treasure trove of information. If there's any hairs or blood from the crime scene in his apartment, to me, that's, you know, that is one of those things we talk about as smoking gun evidence, uh, as well as I think the, the knife sheath is also. I know a lot of attorneys are trying to explain that away right now, but it's sort of hard to explain that away with the guy's DNA on it. Like, you know, how did it get in the bed with, with Madison and Kaylee, a knife sheath? 
where they just happen to be brutally stabbed to death. I think that when an attorney tries to make up a story on how that could have got there, it doesn't make much sense to me. Billy, the first thing that is listed as being recovered from that location is the nitrile black glove. That's one of those black latex gloves. Now, the reason I think that they may have taken that glove is because perhaps uh, during the attack, he wore gloves. And if they can recover a black glove with blood on it that matches, obviously, the victims, and you can say it's consistent with a glove that's found in the apartment, or perhaps there's those receipts talked about, Walmart and Marshall's. Uh, maybe the gloves were bought on that receipt. And again, these are all the little bit of uh, circumstantial pieces of evidence. Like we said, they all pile up and uh, it just makes a nice, neat package. That's what I think they, they may have taken that glove for. Perhaps uh, they want to see if there's any blood on that glove. Maybe uh, he could have one of the gloves back, back to the lotion. So again, absolutely. Mike, uh, what you that they saw inside that? that apartment. Mike. Yo. It's one brick at a time, as Phil says, you know, you, it's uh, it's the totality of all the circumstantial evidence that the prosecutors are asking the jury will eventually ask the jury to consider. And um, it you know, from your look, when you look at it, uh, we'll know a lot more, of course, when the testing is done. But right now it's you know, he had uh, a time to dispose of a lot of things. And I was just looking at interest when they went to the um, vacuum uh, bag. Uh, because probably he he tried to vacuum his clothing. I would imagine, you know, that sort of thing. Those little things. You all you need is one or two hairs from that uh, from uh, the apartment. I'm sorry, the home, or maybe a hair from the dog in that vacuum bag. You know, that's all you need to tie him to that location. And you cannot explain away that um, knife sheath or DNA. Just, you you just know, can't. Mike, we're also talking about multiple, multiple crime scenes. Of course, 1122 King Street is the, the main crime scene. Then his apartment in Washington, the car, right? His home, his parents' home in Pennsylvania, right? Uh, the garbage that he threw out in his neighbor's garbage can, right? Um, the bodies. Each one of the bodies is a crime scene unto itself. Uh, so there's multiple, and then we have, you know, we have other areas of evidence, the computer, his cell phone. Right. Uh, I mean, there's so much, and we talk about, again, building this case one brick at a time and think of all, just all the areas, all the venues that they're going to look and collect evidence. And it's all going to point to Brian Koberger. And, you know, again, he's innocent to proven guilty. I'll say that every time because that's our system but all the forensic evidence all this evidence this guilty evidence is going to point toward him difficult to explain it away right uh bill can i just uh just um follow follow on that sure yeah um you know he had a lot a head start and so the you know the police investigation they have to catch up but at the very end when they did actually um arrest him in pennsylvania and they realized that he'd put the garbage in his neighbor's on his neighbor's property in their garbage can, disposing of it. Um, you also have to realize that the Kohlberg family's home is actually a, a part of the crime scene. He was there and at a home, and he might have had things in his luggage that he brought it back to the home. He might have hidden things in the woods behind the house. He might have put things in the basement in his home 
uh, in different rooms of the house. So um, that is a search totally unto itself right then and there. Absolutely. You know, one of the things of also we spoke about that uh, ab about the purpology and uh, that's a, that's a canonism, but a purpose studying the background of the perpetrator and they're going back to his childhood and digging up some of the things from his childhood. And that builds up his, his background or the part of the behavioral analysis, which it isn't, I think it really helps the uh, prosecution more that they get ahead of this. So the defense doesn't try to use this as, as more or less an excuse. Um, can it be used against him in court? So it's a little different to tell. What we generally classify this type of information as is character evidence. Well, a very curious world. And it's interesting to us because we want to know as a society, what kind of person is capable of committing this horrific quadruple murder? But from an evidentiary standpoint, at this time, it has when I say that for a couple of reasons, number one, Character evidence in general usually can't come in and be used against somebody just to prove their propensity to commit a crime unless it shows something else like motive, common scheme, etc. And what we know so far about Brian Koberger is he has no criminal history. And number two, the fact that he was a depressed teenager, you know, a lot of people are depressed, a lot of people suffer from anxiety, and that doesn't make them a murderer. So at this stage, it's more interesting because it satisfies our curiosity and has a, a very little evidentiary value yet. The other thing to point out here, Idaho does not allow an insanity plea. Why is that important? You know, I think that's huge because number one, he's not, Brian Kohlberg is not gonna be able to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, but it may help him. So let's say, let's fast forward and read the tea leaves. Let's say Brian Koberger had some sort of break with reality. Let's say he had untreated mental illness and it led to him committing these crimes. And we are so far away from that, but we're hypothesizing. Well, what this information may do is offer what we call mitigation. And why is that important? Because mitigation may actually save Brian Koberger's life found guilty and the him put to death as punishment. This type of information may come in and persuade uh, the jury to not, or the trier fact to not uh, institute death penalty against him, but like without possibility of it. You know, one of the things that, and uh, Phil and uh, Mike, you can weigh in on this. One of the things I'm hearing some of these talking head attorneys saying is the the possibility that Brian Koberger could testify. I think there's a zero times a thousand chance of him testifying. I think there's no chance of him testifying. If he testified, it's almost certain certain conviction and certain death penalty, I, I believe, because there's no way he can skirt around all this evidence. So I believe when they start talking about, oh, he might testify, he's not going to testify. He'll never testify, in my opinion. Had he gone on the stand at any time, uh, the minute that he gets on, they're gonna they're gonna rattle him once they start asking, "How did the uh, your DNA get on the knife sheet?" All the different things about his cell phone being the location, video. Uh, I don't think it would take much to rattle him. Very, very little, probably. Mike, yeah, Billy, because Idaho doesn't have um, the uh, plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, 
he won't testify. Uh, absolutely, I agree with Phil. It, if they had it, he could get up there and talk about his life and, and things like that uh, as a kid. They don't have it in Idaho. He's not going to testify. And if he is found guilty and on all four counts and he's facing um, the death penalty, um, then he might be able to get up with his attorney's help and be able to talk to the jury about his uh, about his his life, you know, and being rejected and all that sort of thing. But it's, it wouldn't do him any good. He would have to, as Phil said, you know, he's going to be rattled. Very first question out. How do you explain your your sheath, your DNA right there at the scene? And it'll go. That'll be the highlight. It'll go downhill from there. And the uh, district attorney will be able to review each and every bit of evidence with him sitting there on the witness stand, you know, 10 feet from the jury. No way. No how is he going to be testifying? Absolutely. And found guilty. Right. A lot of ifs here. And we know, which is not until June, will we see this preliminary hearing? Who benefits more, the defense or the prosecution, in extra time to prepare? I have been scratching my head for four days trying to figure out why the defense would give the prosecution six months to essentially help build their case. It is so unusual. I have a couple of theories on opposite ends of the spectrum. Number one is perhaps Brian Koberger has said to his defense team, I am not guilty, but proving me not guilty or finding me not guilty is not enough. I need to be exonerated so that after this trial, I can go have a life. Because right now, I mean, think about it. If Brian Koberger was just found not guilty and he goes to apply to some corporation for as a salesperson, he's never going to get be saying, take all the time you need. You need to find out who really did this. On the other end of the spectrum, he could have said, yeah, I am guilty. And now, now it's your job to save my life. So get on my higher mental history and we're going to put this committee and not have the death penalty on the table at all. Those are two diverse hypotheses. And again, just hypotheses. But why? The defense gave the prosecution this much time when we know the prosecution doesn't have all the puzzle pieces. Right. No, this. You know, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think that the, the only thing he could possibly try to do is to save himself from the death penalty. And again, I'm talking as uh, someone that believes he is guilty. And again, he's innocent to proven guilty. But there is already so much evidence and we they haven't even presented uh, a quarter of it yet. You know, Billy, if he gets on the stand, which we said we don't believe that's going to be the case. I mean, if if a defense, I mean, a prosecutor wants to rattle him, he starts asking about his childhood. Were you ever called fat? Were you ever picked on? Were you ever bullied? Get into his psyche of the things that enraged him. And I'm sure it wouldn't take long before you'd get some, you know, some trigger responses back from him. And again, that's why I don't see him uh, testifying in, in the trial. As far as him trying to avoid the death penalty, uh, I think convicting him and then maybe at the sentencing stage, that's when you could probably leverage him to tell what he knows about it, what his reasons were. Although it sounds like they have so much information, evidence, they may be able to figure out uh, all of his moves and they may not need that. And they may just go right ahead for the death penalty. Christian Cure, thank you for the $5 super chat. She says, Idaho, Idaho has a diminished capacity option. Maybe that would save him from the death penalty, but it's not going to save him from life without parole, Mike. Yeah, I think 
at, like with like Phil said, you know, he's going to he could testify if, if they find him guilty uh, and they come to the penalty f- phase. And the same jury who heard all the evidence is going to be uh, trying to figure out now it has to be again, has to be unanimous. What's going to happen to him? Life behind bars without possibility of parole or the death penalty. He can get up there and um, he can testify, but he's going to be, you know, cross-examined and rattled and um, he'll have to do the best he can. But um, his attorney is going to have to bring up all of the uh, insults and everything that he always felt growing up and this association with his family uh, as as some sort of mitigating um, factor to please save his life and give him, you know, life behind bars rather than the death penalty. Would it do much good? Well, you have, if you don't have one person um, who's been murdered, you've had four beautiful young, as, as Phil said, children, they're, they're 20 to 22 years old, four of them. Uh, you know, how much good would it do? I don't know, but that's the only way I can see him getting up on the stand and testifying at all. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime from a police perspective, you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. It's free. Make comments. (laughs) Share us with your friends. We love to answer comments. We love to hear from our subscribers, our friends, our guests. Also, we have a Patreon with three different levels if you want to support us, and we also have a YouTube channel membership with five different levels. You see the folks in the chat in the green font. They're part of our YouTube family, and we uh, totally appreciate them. This is going to be a many trials has been described. I'm wondering if the surviving who witnessed the killer or uh, that the murders took place will be called to the stand um, in the pretrial or in a trial if it so happens. What do you think? I'd bet my bottom dollar on it. I bet you absolutely, because that's a very piece of, you know, when we, when we look back, why wasn't, why did she call 911? Why did she lock the door and go to sleep? What did she see? Why, it's really, it's an odd piece of evidence and it's going to be challenged. I'm not personally challenged her, I believe her, but as a defense attorney, you have to challenge that evidence. And I'm sure the defense team will, and that will mean, calling her to the stand and grilling her on what exactly happened and what she remembers. Right. And having her look him in the eyes, dragged to bushy eyebrows with a black mask walking through a dark hallway. Scary stuff. Right. I think you froze up there, Bill. Sorry, guys. A little technical delay there, <laughs> getting it off the screen. So, you know, we spoke about that. In fact, we had uh, Brooklyn... Uh, former Brooklyn ADA Michael Vecchioni on, who was the chief of the Homicide Bureau in Brooklyn. And he said if he was trying this case, if he was trying the case, the first person he put on the stand is DM. So he would use her as a prosecution witness. Obviously, maybe the defense is salivating over putting her on the stand, but Michael Vecchioni, a seasoned homicide prosecutor, said that he would put her on the stand as a, a prosecution witness. Think about how powerful that is, Billy. She was present inside the location where 
four people were slaughtered and she was spared her and, and her roommate were spared. And she has intimate knowledge of the inside of that location on the time that it, at the time that it happened. Now uh, we don't know whether or not he saw her or didn't see her walk past her, but again, she's going to shed a lot of light on uh, several things, the inside of that location, the fact that he was there, the direction when he left. And she's also going to be able to give face and name and, and, and tell us about the victims, uh, you know, make them real people. That's probably, uh, what I think Mike was getting at when he said that he would like to call her first, because you always want to establish the victims in the case. When you start your, your, uh, your, uh, prosecution, you start your trial, you want to establish that they were real people. You want to establish who they were. You want to say all the things about them about their life, about their lifestyle. And, you know, these were college kids just living the college life, uh, good kids. So it looks like from what everything we've seen. And again, now you've, you're, you're humanizing them and you're giving them face. And then also the fact that she was inside location and the perpetrator walked right past her. Very, very important and powerful. Erica, thank you for the 499 super chat. Hey fellas, love the New York accents as a Texan. I'm shocked every time. Uh, two, they see Kohlberger's Amazon Fire Stick, wondering what what info it did have on it. Uh, we don't know. They're not putting that information out there. Again, this search. Oh, Frank asks right after Erica. Hi guys, did you see the search warrant? Yes, Frank. We started the show actually with it. What was removed and the testing that they're going to have to do on some of these items. Items. Uh, someone today, uh, I criticized the Boston accent. I apologize to that poor person. I'm sure to a lot of people, our accents are just as bad as we may think the Boston accent is. Listen, so, we had a police commissioner with a Boston that's accent. That's right. We had Bill Bratton was always this the, department. Yeah. He's pack, pack that car, pack that yeah. car over there. You know, uh, that, that's so, all right. We like we like our Boston friends. Yeah. Our and, and I'm sure we, uh, you know, to some people. They can't take on New York. Hey, do me, hey, forget about it. <laughs> forget about it. But let me let me make a comment about the fire stick. Because the first thing that popped into my mind when I saw the fire stick was perhaps they wanted to see what he was watching. There's a million documentaries on on uh, all these different cable stations regarding serial killers, murders in general. You and I appeared on a show called The Perfect Murder, which paralleled real uh, cases. You know, they they uh, did reenactments and stuff. So perhaps if if there's a lot of that, he was obsessing on things like that again doing the research on how to be a killer and to kill maybe that's the only thing i could think of why they would take something like that the fire stick just to see what he was uh plugging into so to speak mike how important of evidence is your uh you know your internet search history you know we just saw on the uh the case, case. in boston yeah the walls case where he you know uh he, he was doing things uh, that were searching how to right. get rid of a 120 pound human body. Brilliant. What a brilliant uh, criminal, you know? Right. And uh, some of the other things he did, obviously he, he almost tried to get caught, but thank God this guy did get caught because horrific crime. Billy, it goes to state of mind. It goes to the accused state of mind. Of course, uh, Kohlberg's, Kohlberger's attorneys would say it's irrelevant it has nothing to do with the homicides because, let's face it, he was a doctoral student in a criminology program studying uh, mass murderers. And the uh, attorney would say, Your Honor, that's irrelevant. You can't put that evidence before the jury. It's overly prejudicial. It will inflame the jury's passions. Um, many people access these documentaries and they don't kill. 
Um, he's a student. This is what he does. This is how he's getting his PhD. This is the work he is doing. And so therefore, the uh, defense would have a pretty solid ground for objecting to the introduction of any evidence that may be gathered regarding his uh, viewing habits or even his search engine habits, you know, Googling. Of course, you know, the, the, it's up to the judge to decide whether or not that would be overly prejudicial or whether it actually is very important uh, to sh and very relevant to show his state of mind. Um, it could go either way, depending on the jury. Uh, I'm sorry, depending on the judge. I would hope that the judge would say, you, you know what? I think I'll let the jury decide to, you know, how much weight that they will give to it, but we will allow, um, you know, the results of that, uh, of his searches uh, about uh, what, what's on those searches and let them decide it's the weight that they're going to give it in terms of the homicide charges. But well, Mike, it, doesn't the judge have to be extra, extra careful in how they apply the law? Because this is a death penalty case. Sure. And the chance that it will get appealed if the death penalty is uh, given as a uh, as a punishment is almost 100 percent chance it's going to get appealed oh, yes. if that's the result of it. Yeah. That's the history of death penalty cases. Death penalty cases in this country wind up costing millions and millions of dollars. And many times the defendant is never put to death. It's almost yes. automatic in every case where it's appealed. I don't know mm -hmm. if it's uh, that he has to appeal it or, or I don't know. Just yeah. I, I haven't seen anyone get the death penalty and is executed in a short period of time after, you know, they they're uh, convicted and given the death penalty. It's always years and years, like you said, and then a lot of court challenges and appeals go down the line. EKC, thank yeah. you for the five dollar super sticker. You know, I want to play a little bit of this. This is um, the public defender um, from Pennsylvania who represented him in the um, in the hearing uh, where he waived extradition. And he's uh, he's on he was on Cuomo. Uh, I, I believe it was last night. Um, and we're going to play a little bit of this and see what they, he has to say. And and in the context of the situation. Uh, the man is an intelligent man, Brian. Uh, he was easy to talk to. He was aware of the situation. Uh, really, it was a great conversation that we had, given the circumstances of everything involved. You say uh, that he told you he was shocked that he was arrested. How so and why? I, I believe he was shocked by the moment that the police broke his door down. I got unaware that that was happening. The arrest, he was... He wasn't expecting it, obviously. Uh, to be clear, you drafted a statement with and for you're the, the accused. We said, I will be exonerated. Those were not your words. You agree with his assessment? I agree what he had said to me that he would be exonerated, which I believe implicitly that he was innocent. Now that is a you know we're both lawyers. You're just a bad one. Uh, I don't know about that. I do. Your representation bill is to do everything you can to advance his cause under law. That's zealous representation. You do not have to say you believe he is innocent. You can say he's not guilty of the charge. They can't make the case. I think that they're speaking out of school. I don't think they have what they think. There's a whole range of qualifying statements. But innocent is something else. Innocent is that you believe 
He did not do this. Do I have it accurate? Well, I don't want to put those words in my mouth. He said he was eager to be exonerated, which I believed him to mean that he believed he was innocent. I wasn't uh, judging yes, the of course. case at that point in time. Uh, I didn't have the affidavit of probable cause. I knew none of the facts. And I didn't ask Brian about any of the facts or circumstances surrounding the case either. Okay, that is very important. And I apologize because I have been slapped for this assessment so early in the case. But now that we put out the statement, you know, this is what you he told you, and that was your takeaway about how he felt about his own very different. I apologize for any other inference. I'm glad we cleared it up. Uh, now, once you saw the affidavit, what do you think now? I, I said from the beginning, I read it four times through before I think I got most of it soaked in. I felt that it was a strong circumstantial case that's likely to possibly be uh, based upon evidence I would expect, uh, but certainly holes. Um, whether or not the prosecution can close those holes is another story for another day. Very interesting, Mike. Uh, you know, it's not often that you hear a defense attorney say that in reading the probable cause affidavit, it sounds like a pretty strong case. Thoughts? Yeah, I think um, I think he's just being very candid. He, uh, I watched the uh, interview with uh, Mr. Como several times. Um, you know, his job when he met uh, Koberger was just to cover him for the hearing, the extradition hearing. He wasn't. It's not about determining guilt or innocence or probable cause, cause or not. It's all. It's about is a single hearing in Pennsylvania to see if he gets, uh, you know, transferred back to Idaho. Um, that's it. So he wanted to be very limited. He didn't want to get into uh, any statements. And he even said at one point in the interview, he cut off Koberger uh, several times when Koberger began to talk about uh, the case. And, um, you know, his job is to zealously advocate for his client at that hearing. But he also did not does not want to do anything that would, uh, you know, diminish uh, Koberger's defense going forward. So I'm glad he didn't comment on the substance of the charges. Reading the affidavit, it's pretty eye-opening experience. And he said he took three times before he got it all and um, very comprehensive. And I think he's just being very candid that, hey, um, this seems to be a very strong case. You know, Mike, one thing I want to ask, and, and this is a, probably the most difficult question for an attorney to answer because it's there's secrets in the attorney business just like there is in a law enforcement business what does an attorney do if his client say brian Coburg tells his attorney yeah i did it now get me off what does an attorney do oh well, the, the problem is now we're talking about it at the trial not at not not the yeah, looking, let's pretend it's not brian Coburger because there's so much emotion okay. in this. Let's pretend it's any John Q. Murderer goes to okay. his attorney and says, John Q. yeah, I did it. <laughs> yeah, I did it. Now get me off. Okay. What does an attorney do at that point? Does he recuse himself? No, no, no. The attorney will zealously advocate for his client, you know, as he's supposed to. That's his part. That's his canon of ethics. And he will do so, but at the best of his ability. But he is also an officer of the court. And whatever he says to the judge you know, he can't lie to the judge. The judge is not going to ask him, you know, did your client, you know, um, you know, admit 
to a homicide, but he will do everything in his power to uh, challenge the admissibility of the evidence by the prosecution to try and sow seeds of, of doubt, you know, because that's what the prosecutor is trying to prove is beyond a reasonable doubt. He's trying to sow the seeds in the jury's mind that maybe there is some sort of reasonable doubt. Um, the tricky part it comes when the if a defendant who actually has told his attorney that he's actually guilty of the crime, Damn. then it's really impossible for that um, defense attorney to call that witness to the stand, call the defendant to the stand if they want to be called. Um, he can, but he cannot solicit uh, questions that are lies, I, qu ask questions that would result in perjury, which is a felony by the defendant. So it's really very difficult. It's to a put slippery a slope, on. as you attorneys like to use that you're, term. You're not, a, you're not allowed to let your no. client lie in open court. That's exactly, exactly. So you do everything else that you possibly can do without that. Thank you. Phil said in, in like 30 seconds, but it took me five Phil's minutes. Got, Phil's got a walking on the street Brooklyn law degree. Thank you. <laughs> you, know, you know what? I borrowed it from Michael Vecchione when Good. he was on. He, he, he went through something like this before. And Bill, I love it. John Q. Murderer. <laughs> I love it. That's a great canonism because it, it fits. We use it. We use the term John Q. Citizen. Now we have John Q. Murder. I love it. Christian Cure, thank you for the five dollar super chat. She says, "I hope Murphy the dog puts the nail in Brian's coffin." Obviously, meaning that perhaps some of the hairs in the, his apartment belong to Murphy the dog. That could be a possibility, and that can't really be explained. Oh yeah, he takes Murphy out for walks on weekends. I mean, come on. That no, can't be number seven of the evidence recovered, one possible animal hair. And then there's one, two, three, four other hairs, but they specifically say possible animal hair. I would love it if that uh, is the hair that uh, was recovered from the uh, from the dog at the location where the murders took place. That would be sensational. And it would just be another piece of uh, evidence, another nail in the coffin of uh, Brian Koberger. You know, Phil, earlier it was listed there was a uh, a, a certain type of glove. You said there was like a, almost like a rubber glove recovered, Nitri right? Nitrile black glove. Yeah, Because so, yeah, someone mentioned the glove that was recovered within the, the fenced area of the crime scene. That was like a winter type glove. Yeah, that, that was like some, a, a leatherish glove. That was Right, like so that, that wasn't even anything A, a nitrile glove is like a, a rubber glove. It's a black rubber glove is the bottom, simplest way to explain it. Well, that someone would wear to try to protect their uh, fingerprints because they didn't want uh, mechanics wear them. Yeah, it's to protect your hands. But perhaps he was wearing. They believe he was wearing these during the uh, during the homicide. And uh, again, if they do recover uh, gloves and they recover the clothing he was wearing, again there was receipts there. Uh, something to do with from Walmart. Dickies. Dickies is a clothing line. It's like uh, work clothing. Uh, perhaps they believe he was wearing that during the murder and discarded it. So all of these di different things that were recovered from there could play instrumental roles in the prosecution case. Going Absolutely. Forward. Susie Chapstick, thank you for the 199 Super Chat. Susie, we went over the whole uh, the search warrant in regards to the things that they recovered and some of the tests they would have to do on the evidence recovered. Uh, so we're not, we're not going to redo it, but just we did... Uh, we, we did go over it, or actually we started the show with it. I want to play a little bit of this video. It just shows where the case has been and where it's going. 22, these four universities.
universities were discovered stabbed in their home in Moscow, Idaho. Local police described the case as very complex and it took more than six weeks for a suspect to be arrested. We pieced together information from a case affidavit released by authorities, verified publicly available evidence, and pulled in ABC News reporting to create a visual timeline outlining significant events in this case. I'm Emmanuel Saliba, a senior reporter with ABC News. It's around 9 p.m. local time on Saturday, November 12th in Moscow, Idaho. According to an affidavit released by authorities, Zana Kronodal and her boyfriend, Ethan Chapin, are seen hanging out at the Sigma Chi house. It's about a five-minute walk from their off-campus house on King Road. Zana's roommates, Kaylee Gonsalves and Madison Mogan, are at the Corner Club. It's a historic sports bar in town. They stay at the bar for about three hours, according to an affidavit released by authorities. And around 1.30 a.m., Haley and Maddie leave the corner bar. Next available images we have of them are this surveillance footage of Tasty News. They're heading towards a local food truck, which is about a six-minute walk from the bar. Police say this man with them is not a suspect. You know, I just want to talk about how, as we watch some of these images from this case, about all of the different things that was being suggested while this case was going on, how many people became suspect numero uno, how many there were, and how many people that the internet and even the mainstream media pointed out as, how was he cleared so quickly? And if he's cleared, remember this? If he's cleared, does that mean he's off? Because I, I think it was a boyfriend. Someone left and went, they said, went to Africa or something. Everyone was bent out of shape that he was the killer, you know? And it's just showing where this case was and a lot of the the lunacy connected with it. You guys have no comment on that? I'm surprised. <laughs> no, I, I thought you were going to play the video again. Um, yeah, I'm going to, but I thought you'd comment. <laughs> yes, let, let me comment real quick. The, uh, the thing with Adam, uh, you know, again, people would be suspicious of that. I get it. I would be too. But after you uh, start the investigation, perhaps uh, it was able to identify who Adam was and perhaps it was easy to figure out what they were talking about and you can discount it. Now, that doesn't mean, as we said previous numerous times ad nauseum in the past, that if we develop further information down the line that Adam is possibly involved in this thing, he now becomes a suspect again. But I think the reason that they discounted it in the early stages of this was it was very explainable at the time. They may have uh, contacted Adam and they may have uh, interviewed him and he had a rock solid alibi. So they said, all right, he's not involved in it. Could be that or some other things that uh, could have uh, led the police to say that he's not involved in it. Well, I remember that the people that got the most upset about people being cleared was the mainstream media. They were freaking out. They were like, how do they clear him? What if he's the, you know, and we were like, calm down. If he's implicated later on, they can bring him back in. Doesn't mean he's out of the trick bag, as Phil would say, right? Absolutely. Michael Geary, you have anything to say with your educated uh, thoughts? I just think a lot of people see, hear, the, hear the phrase, you know, someone's cleared as almost as if the, they're, they are now immunized from any sort of prosecution. It just means that if a person is cleared, and we don't even like that term half the time, but it means that for right now they have an alibi and it we're 
going to check it out to see if it holds up. If it holds up, great. We'll put that file aside. But if it doesn't, they can be brought back into the case. But people, uh, I think a lot of people have, uh, you know, they're unsure of what we're, the expressions that we use, what they actually mean. Absolutely. Steve McGarrett, thank you for the 499 super sticker. I want to play a little more of this. I'm not going to play the whole thing, but it's sort of fascinating to look back and to see where we were over two months ago, November 13th, and where it's going right now. Uh, pretty amazing. This is the Grub Truck. They have been streaming live on Twitch since about 10 p.m. And around 1.41 a.m., we see all three of them walk into frame. Matt and Kaylee order. Have a good night. Hi. Welcome back. I think I would like to um Oh my god, there's there's hoodie guy. Hoodie guy uh -oh. was a suspect numero suspect numero uno also. Remember that? Oh my Absolutely. god, he did it. Let's lock him up right now. You know, it's like uh I just, I, I, guys, I, I'm, I, I know I'm being sarcastic. I'm doing that purposely because in investigation, there has to be patience. There has to be patience and there has to be following and believing in the evidence. And during this case, there was so many suspects that uh, you, you can't even list them on a scorecard. No, 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 no. Thank you. Absolutely. How many more do you need? Uh, That's the second one? Awesome. Don's mom for me. Um, $10 for him. Oh, so. Cool. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wait around for about 10 minutes. Around 1.51 a.m., they grab food from the truck window and walk out of frame. Police confirm that at this point, they get picked up by a car service. And about six minutes later, they arrive at home on King Road. According to an affidavit, Ethan and Zana are already in the house, along their roommates. 2.47 a.m., according to police, a phone belonging to the suspect, Brian Koberger, cell network in Washington. You know, we discussed that uh, numerous times. We spoke about that, that thing called geofencing. Having his phone go out of the network and be turned off is almost as powerful evidence as the phone being on during the whole event because it shows that he is planning. This is premeditated. He's turning his phone off because he knows when this is over, that's one of the ways police are going to track him. Phil? You know, Billy, how many times do you turn your phone off? And I guess there's a way to tell how many times he turned his phone off in the past. So that would be something that when that is, uh, you know, presented at uh, trial, it's going to be pretty powerful. Why between the hours of 2.57 a.m. and I believe it was around 4.30 or so uh, was the phone off? He, ha he would have to explain that. And again, it's going to be a some more circumstantial evidence. One last comment about Hoodie Guy. When Hoodie Guy, uh, and the mainstream media is guilty of this, when that video was initially played of Hoodie Guy, it was about a 15 or 20 second clip. It looked extremely suspicious to me. However, when you sat and watched the whole video, which was about eight or 10 minutes long, and you saw that Hoodie Guy was interacting, it didn't seem suspicious at all. However, they put out that 10 or 15 second video taken out of context, and the whole United States thought that Hoodie Guy was the perpetrator because it looked like he he was lurking in and possibly stalking uh, uh, Maddie and, and Kaylee. And again, 
you know, uh, there you have it. The mainstream media, they uh, they just put that little snippet in there and uh, hoodie guys, the, the perpetrator. Thank God the mainstream media are not the police, are not doing the investigation. You know, they can do after the fact investigations. But, you know, I remember someone referred to the, the bartender as the infamous uh, Adam, the infamous that, Adam. That was Cuomo that said yeah, that. Yeah, I was like, how did he become infamous? What did he do? He didn't do anything. How is all? How is he all of a sudden infamous? <laughs> His name was uttered, and that was it. He was infamous. Crazy, right? Absolutely. So we're just like sort of reporting on this is how this gets out of control. It gets really ridiculously out of control. That you know, people are, are making up things in this real highly charged investigation. Kaylee playing with her dog in the room on the third floor. She also hearing someone say, there's someone here. 4.04 a.m., authorities say the white sedan is seen driving into the neighborhood a fourth time. That is such powerful information there, Mike, that the, yeah. the white sedan, yeah. the uh, Hyundai Elantra is seen, and it parks behind the house. I mean, is that not ridiculously powerful evidence? Oh, he's got nowhere to go with that because um, how do you explain, park, you know, driving around four times around a location where uh, somewhere after four, between four and four fifteen in the morning, four young people are slain, and he's got no one to visit in that location. He doesn't have an alibi witness to say, "Oh, Brian was visiting us, and we live only down the block, and he's visiting us, and we're having a party here." At that's it. Um, that is very powerful circumstantial evidence of his consciousness of guilt uh, and getting himself. Uh, Mike, we love that expression, consciousness of guilt. In fact, we, Phil and I both feel like we took a college course and we, if that was all we learned the whole semester, it was worth the price of admission. That was it. That's a Garyism. Well, I'm, I'm surreptitiously trying to get you guys. Smooth criminal podcast. My theory is the Adam vid was leaked by law enforcement to feed the sluice and let them get on with their investigation. If it wasn't deliberate, they should do it in the future. Smooth criminal podcast. Thank you so much for the $10 uh, super chat. I don't know if that's true or not, but thank you for the $10 super chat. Let me play a little more of this. This is, 4.12 a.m. According to phone records obtained by police, Zanik and using TikTok. The affidavit states that the same surviving roommate says she hears what sounds like crying coming from Zana's room. She opens her door a second time and says she hears a male voice say something to the effect of, it's okay, I'm going to help you. Now, Mike, that's unclear to me, and I believe that is the perpetrator's voice, but it hasn't been clarified. No. That that is absolutely the perpetrator's voice, but I believe it is. I the only other thing it could be is Ethan's voice. Yeah, reading over the affidavit after it came out several weeks ago, uh, I kind of thought it would be Ethan's voice. Now, I'm my my belief is that uh, so I, I'm thinking it's not Brian Kohlberger's voice, uh, only because it suggests I'm going to help you. And I and I thought my impression was that it's uh, Ethan. Uh, seriously, mortally wounded, trying to give some, you know, aid and comfort to his to his girlfriend, who is also probably at this point has been attacked. Um, that's what I thought. And then you talked about it possibly being Kohlberger's. It's very interesting that the um, that DM, the surviving uh, roommate, 
could not identify the voice or did not identify the voice for the police at that point. Um, it's hard to tell. Um, I, you know, we can make a good case either way for whose voice that is. See, I, I thought it was the work of a criminal that would be trying to fool someone to think like you're not in danger. It's okay. I'm going to help Maybe. them, you know, Maybe. and rather than, uh, Ethan potentially being mortally wounded and maybe even not being able to speak at that point. Maybe. Yeah. So, you know, and we don't know, it hasn't been confirmed, but I thought it would have been interesting to see if, remember we spoke about doing a voice lineup as well as a, you know, it's unclear also the type of mask that the, that the assailant was wearing. Was it a COVID type surgical mask or was it a mask that covered more of his face? Because if it just covered from the bridge of the nose down, there's a potential that the perpetrator could be picked out in the lineup. Billy, I'm leaning towards uh, the voice being Brian. I'm I'm going into your camp. And the reason I feel that is because if she was familiar with um, uh, Ethan and, and uh, Zana, perhaps she would have said it was Zana that said, uh, you know, okay, I'm going to help you. Or Ethan that said that, you know, so that's why I believe it's going to wind up being Brian. And perhaps um, he started to attack one of the, uh, uh, one of the victims and then started to attack the other one. And the other one was maybe crying out for help or, you know, struggling to breathe. And that's when he said, it's okay. I'm going to help you. I know that sounds horrible. It sounds uh, uh, very, very violent, but uh you have to figure out or try and think what would be the reason that someone would be uh, uttering that statement. I think Mike covered it. It's possible that it could be uh, one of the two victims, but I'm leaning towards uh, it being Brian. At 4.17 a.m., this security camera on a neighbor's home picks up distorted audio of what sounds like voices or a whimper followed by a loud thud. A dog can also be heard barking numerous times. This camera is less than 50 feet from Zana's bedroom. The affidavit states their surviving roommate then opens her door a third time. She sees a masked man walking past her towards the sliding glass door in the kitchen. In frozen shock, she locks her door. 4.20 a.m., police say the white sedan is leaving the neighborhood at a high rate of speed. 5.25 a.m., authorities say that same vehicle is seen on five cameras back in the Pullman area where the suspect lives. And then... Between 9.12 and 9.21 a.m., police say data collected shows the suspect's phone appearing near the scene of the murders. About eight hours. That, that is one of the craziest craziest things in, in this case is that the perpetrator goes back to the crime scene. But it's not unheard of. And many serial killers return to the scene of the crime and it's part of their thrill it's almost a voyeuristic activity that they go back. It's almost like in the same vein as taking a souvenir or a trophy from the crime scene. Returning back to the crime scene, it's almost unimaginable, but, imaginable, but we've seen it in the history of, of murders. And if you study murder and homicide, this is not an unusual activity. I believe he was returning to the scene and expected to see a large police presence. And he was probably quite surprised that there was no large police presence at that time. Absolutely. Mike, you got to have a comment on this. And we see this also too with, with arsonists, you know, they get off on seeing all of the, uh, the police, the firemen, in this case, there'd be ambulances, there'd be uh, police cars all over the place. There'd be people crying, 
Um, you know, things would be roped off, cordoned off. You know, this is the, the, the thrill, the satisfaction that he gets by pulling off this sort of action. Um, he's got that thrill of it and the, the adrenaline. But the uh, final bit is the, the cherry on top of the Sunday is seeing all of the grief and all of the emergency equipment there and knowing that he did this. Very, very chilling. Very, very chilling. Absolutely. Snug with Pug, thank you for the 449 Super Chat. All you guys that are in the uh, chat, thank you so much for watching us tonight. Thank you for being supporters of Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. This is, you know, fascinating new information as this case goes forward. Uh, there's going to be a lot more new evidence and new information coming through in this case. After the killings, a 911 call reports an unconscious birth at the scene of the crime. Shortly after, Moscow police discover the bodies of four students. The facts of the case that we know right now. November 16th, police reveal the four victims were stabbed to death. The four were stabbed with a knife, but no weapon has been located at this time. We are eternally grateful that we spent so much time with him. This is Ethan's mom on November 30th at a visual honoring her son and the three other victims. That's the most important message that we have for you and your families is to make sure that you spend as much time as possible with those people because time is precious and it's something you can't get back. Powerful. That lady is a great lady, you know, uh, Ethan Chapin's mom. I mean, the strength that she had just to go in front of an audience like that and speak and, and honor her son, just uh, incredible people. In the same way that Steve Gonzalez is a, is a strong uh, father representing his, his daughter and, and just uh, in unbelievable grief, unbelievable grief that none of us can even imagine. And to have to now, of course, live through this. And this is going to take probably at least a year to, to, uh, for this case to go through. And we can't even imagine that much of just having to live with this. Just imagine having to live with this for a whole year. And then it's not over. It's never over. You lost your child. It's, they say there's nothing like it that a parent will never, ever get over the loss of a child. It's just so uh, heart-wrenching to watch that. It choked me up watching uh, that woman uh, speak about her son like that. And we know that he was one of three, a, a triplet, and they returned to school recently. Uh, and then this family is going to go through more trauma, and all of the families, as time goes on, I'm sure that uh, reading what they read today with these affidavits that were released, the fact that uh, may, they may or may not have known about the direct messaging between Kohlberger and uh, the victims. So again, uh, they're going to get the, so to speak, the, the Band-Aid pulled off the wound quite frequently over the next uh, couple of years, uh, as it may take a year or two to for this whole trial to play out. And uh, I, my heart goes out to them, and uh, God bless them, and uh, keep them in your thoughts and prayers. These people are, are suffering tr tremendously, tremendously. Kristen Cure, thank you for the $5 Super Chat. Dickies makes a black COVID mask and those black nitrate gloves. Well, Kristen, one of the things they're going to do is they're going to look at his financials and his credit cards and his debit cards and see if he bought any of these items prior to the uh, to the murder. And I don't know if – I don't think they recovered a mask in the warrant in his apartment. We don't know what they recovered at the warrant in the Pennsylvania home of his parents, but – 
look, we're gonna we expect to hear about a great deal more evidence, and uh, this was just a surprise today. Um, that first of all, the Instagram, the, the instant messaging, the direct messaging, that was a surprise, and then for the warrant on his apartment to have been unsealed, and us to uh, have found out uh, what what they had recovered during that, we were a little bit not prepared for it. Phil, just uh, want to. Go to the Joe Murray. Uh... Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe's a big supporter of police off-the-cuff real crime stories and a tremendous trial attorney. Excellent. Um, you know, one of the things I just wanted to, as we're, we're nearing uh, the end of the show, is does this say... The, the the evidence of the direct messaging does it now confirm you think the fact that he was targeting two of these girls that it shows that he had prior contact even if it was unreciprocated contact that he contacted them and maybe they didn't respond but in his mind that could mean a, a great deal of things so is this a sort of almost like a confirmatory that he was targeting these girls? In my opinion, I believe it to be so. I mean, you saw the uh, Instagram post where uh, the, the reporter at the video that you showed said it was taken on the, I believe the day of the arrest or perhaps the day of the murders. Uh, he's following uh, Kaylee and Maddie. So he had to have a reason for following them. I mean, you don't just pick people out of a hat and decide to follow them. There has to be some reason. So uh, I think that this kind of confirms the uh, contact before the murders, in my opinion. Chris May, uh, thank you. A new member to our YouTube. Chris May, thank you very much for joining our, you. our YouTube channel. Very much appreciated. Uh, we'll try to make you uh, make you proud and make you happy that you're a member. Uh, Mike, what's your feelings? Um, I think it, as Phil said, it's uh, it's pretty good evidence. Uh, the direct messaging and the following uh, of those two girls, because the the, the two of them are you know, and end up uh, being being uh, homicide victims. The only thing uh, there that I could say on the other side of the coin, because I always like to look at things from two, both sides, is that uh, if the if um, you know Miss Consalves and Miss Mogan had been uh, followed by numerous people, um, you know, perhaps uh, being very sociable, but uh, other than that. You know, it's going to be left up to the jury to determine how much weight do they give to that bit of evidence. It's going to come into trial and uh, it'll be up to them to determine as they are the triers of fact, how much weight do they give give it in the end? Absolutely. You know, someone said in the chat that the um, direct messages were the only uh, evidence of uh, prior contact. But what we know is we have evidence of contact after the murder, his DNA on the knife sheath that was left in the house. So they, the police and the investigators, the FBI, the Idaho State Police, they may have more evidence that there was prior contact. But now 
we, the public, and us talking heads on uh, YouTube and content creators, we're finding out almost accidentally that there was prior contact through a leak from an investigator. So I have to believe that the the investigators have a lot more information that we're not privy to. Phil, final words. Final words. As it appears to me, the noose is slowly tightening around the neck of Brian Kohlberger with all these little bits of information that are coming out. And I really believe there's a mountain of all the evidence that will come out at trial. Um, like we said, uh, uh, you know, we're putting this together brick by brick. We're building a house. Um, just more and more evidence pointing towards his guilt. Uh, let's keep our fingers crossed, hope and pray that we're going to get the justice that these four victims deserve. Ethan Chapin, uh, Madison Mogan, uh, Zaina Kernodal, and Kaylee Gonzalez. We've mentioned Brian's name many times. I thought it was proper to mention the victims' names. 100%. Mike, final words. Uh, just for the uh, viewers to um, be patient. Uh, it takes a long time, as Phil says, to build that house. But each and every day, you just tighten that noose just a little bit more uh, until until the day of the trial. Just be patient and just and we'll uh, hopefully get justice in the end. You know, folks, I think that the case is in a good place right now. And uh, I understand that, you know, they're still building this case. They're building a strong case against them. You heard that one attorney say she has no idea why why the prosecution allowed six months of preparation for the defense that, you know, that's a long time. And we, as I said earlier on, they don't have to be back in court till June 26th. And I think the first thing they're going to do in, on June 26th or sometime that week is to ask for a stay till September. I guarantee that's going to happen. Almost guarantee. And it'll and the judge will probably allow it because no one's going to want to work through the summer. So, uh, folks, I just want to thank everyone for listening. This is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Have a safe night, and God bless everyone. Stay safe, everyone. Take care, everybody. One episode.